Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, you can be seated here at the campuses, wherever you might be. If you're gathering in your home, 12 Stone Home, online, however you're gathering, we are so glad you're here. Welcome to the love of God. Aren't you glad God loves you? Come on now. Are you not glad God loves you? What an amazing God. He is so good. He is so good. And he has so much good for you. Listen today. Receive what he has. And in today's teaching, this 35-ish, 40 minutes, I get to do the, the introduction. Trey gets to teach the body of it. And then Pastor Jason Barry is going to wrap it up. So let's jump in. Abraham Lincoln, he had to, he had to address, solve some really thorny issues. And so he asked a question. Here's how the story goes. He asked, how many legs would a dog have if we called the dog's tail a leg? Everybody got it? How how many would it be? What's the answer? I asked my family. They got it. How how many? Just tell your neighbor. How many would it be? It'd be five. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious. And, and And then Abraham responded and said, not true. It would only be four. It would only be four legs because calling a dog's tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Come on. What's his point? People want to change things that are unchanging in order to fit our agenda. It's it's like us. And we have five-legged answers to real questions in life, and it's confusing. We're getting five-legged answers in the arena of politics in order to fit agendas. We're getting five-legged answers in this culture to really important questions. People have changed the teachings of Christ to to five-legged answers. Why do we do this? I was thinking about why why do we find ourselves uh, giving five-legged answers when when it's clear it's only four legs? Why do we do do this? And and the the Apostle James, Jesus' older brother, really gives us the answer. It's because we want our own way. But about read the scripture in James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Really, we want our own way. When you don't like something, even when it's unchanging and you want to change it, you just say, hey, let's make the tail a leg. And it's confusing. If we're honest, there's a lot of confusion. We got five-legged answers to our origins, how we got here, why we're here, where we're going. We got five-legged answers to our purpose, to our dignity, to our identity. We got five-legged answers that are confusing when it comes to gender and sin and suffering and morality. We've rewritten the teachings of Jesus. Even inside the church, the church gets confused. And Jesus came along to teach us what is unchanging, what is what everybody 
unchanging. I want to hear that with some fire. I don't care where you're sitting. You're in this room. You're at another campus. You're here at 12 Stone Home. You're all alone online. I don't care. I want you to hear the answer to this series is unchanging. There are some things that are what? Unchanging. And you need to know what's unchanging. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 7. He gave the imagery, the picture of a house. Like, okay, some of you have been on spring break. Some of you still are perhaps right now. A whole bunch of people go to Florida, get on the coast. And, and Jesus was describing coastal houses the way you build them. And, and he describes that you make sure you build the foundation solid, really on rock, on unchanging truth. You build it on sand, something shaky. Well, when the storm comes, when culture comes, when the waves and the tide of culture, which are always changing in and out, it, if you're built on sand, it'll just erode and you fall in the midst of the storm. Build your life on the solid, unchanging truth. That's why this imagery, let me just give it to you. Let's, if you don't understand how the coastal houses are built, they're built on piers. They're built on what? Piers. They're built on piers. In other words, so that the water comes in and out, the storms come, and it can stand. And you see that on top of the piers are the floors. So what's below the floor is unchanging. It's got to be rock solid. It's got to be built on piers. And then you have the floor. Now what's above the floor, that has some change. You can change the layout. You can change the color. You can change the design, the decor. We spend a whole bunch of life above the floor. We think all of life is what happens above the floor. When actually below the floor is what matters. The peers, the foundation. And why does it matter? Well, here's a picture of a house. You can see everything around it. Torn down, destroyed in the storm. This is at Mexico Beach, Florida. But the house, this house was built to stand. See, there are unchanging truths. In 300 years after... Jesus rose from the dead after Easter. Welcome to after Easter. There was confusion once again, and people were giving five-legged answers and changing unchanging truth. And the church gathered together the Nicene Council in 325 AD and solidified, taking the 874,000 words in the Bible down to 271 words said, this is the essence. This is below the floor. This is foundational. This right here, is, these are the peers that we build our lives upon. And so we're going to jump into a series called Unchanging, the Nicene Creed. We're going to unpack it. The Nicene Creed gives you like the peers. And, and so I just, what does it mean to be Christian? Like, what are we doing? I, I wrote out, what does it mean to be Christian in a world of many opinions? What do we believe? What are the peers of faith? And what difference does that belief make in your life? Great questions. Because we left off last week in Easter with, in this world you will have trouble. It's what Jesus said. In other words, storms are going to come. They're going to ravage the house. All the houses around you. But if you'll build on the peers, the unchanging truth of Jesus, you stand. Your peace stands. Your marriage stands. Your soul stands. Your character stands. Your children stand. The most important things in life and your eternity. Build your life on the foundation that stands. What are the peers that you build your life on? And that's where the Nicene Creed begins. So Trey, come on up here. Trey's going to begin. He's going to give us the first one. Come give it up for Trey. Come on, Trey. Bring, bring the fire. Let's put the first 
portion of the creed up here. Take us right into it, my friend. So we're going to jump into the first line of the Nicene Creed. So what I'm going to ask us to do is we're going to read this together. We're going to focus in on this unchanging truth. Uh, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to actually ask you to stand and read it with me. So let me read it the first time. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. As PK said, this creed has been affirmed for 1,700 years, billions of Christians across Christian tradition. And so let's stand and honor it across campuses, 12 Stone Home. Let's read this together to affirm this unchanging truth. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. You can have a seat. I have a goal today, um, and one of those goals is for us to not get lost in details, to not get bogged down as we, as we learn doctrine. The idea is that this creed would lift our faith, that it would encourage our souls. And today, our first focus is on the doctrine of creation. So I want to define the doctrine of creation for us, because that's going to help us move forward into the teaching. Here's how we would define the doctrine of creation. God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it to glorify himself. So we're going to be talking about creation, and there is a ton of, of discussion around creation, even among Christians. The, the, the timing of it all, what happened when, old earth versus new earth, did God only create Adam and Eve directly, what about the naming of the animals, how do, how do dinosaurs fit into all of this? And, and so many more questions, but we can't really go in that direction today. We can barely scratch the surface of those questions. So what I want to do is help us focus on creation by lifting up uh, two main lanes. And these, these help us understand what we need to believe as Christians about creation. And those two lanes are, are pretty simple. Who and why? So that's how we're going to dig into creation. Who? And then the who question actually leads us into why. Instead of getting stuck in the how, when, and the what, this is where we're going to start. We're going to ask two questions out of who. Who is God and who are we? Who is God and who are we? Scripture introduces us to God in the very first words of the Bible. Line one, page one, verse one, Genesis chapter one, verse one says this, in the beginning, God. Now brace yourselves. I know that's a lot of scripture, but it teaches us something really important. In the beginning, who? God. Very quickly, we see that, that God is the main character of history and creation, that first and foremost, it is about God. Now, there is so much speculation and even controversy as we try to dig into the identity of God. Who is God? Is he a force? Is he a deity? Is he a person? Is he powerful but distant? Is he powerful but loving and therefore involved in creation? Do all religions point back to the same God but just take a different path to get there? It's our hope to answer some of those questions today. So a really big question for us. Who is God. The Bible teaches it this way. This is what the distinctly Christian understanding of God is. There is only one God. 
the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture actually gives us a moment where God gives us his name, and his name is Yahweh, which uh, translated from Hebrew to English essentially means I am who I am. God is the very essence of presence and, and existence. He is our heavenly father. He is the almighty God. All other attempts to name God or find God in other religions falls short. He is the only true God. He is holy and righteous and loving, all-knowing and ever-present. God has always existed. He never came into existence. Therefore, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is perfect and unchanging. He is the same forever, past, present, and future. He is autonomous and independently powerful. That's who our God is. And out of, yeah, we can celebrate that. <clears throat> And out of that, out of those characteristics and those attributes, what does God do? The same passage of scripture that we just read continues. In the beginning, God, our main character, the, 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 everything in history revolves around him, created. He created. That's the very first verb in the Bible. Create. It's the first recorded action of God. It's the way the Bible introduces us to God is as creator. As the creed says, he is the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Creating. Creating is not just something God does. It is who he is. It's in his very nature. He creates. He creates the earth, the solar system, the vast array of galaxies and stars. He creates animals. He creates us. He creates all life. He creates everything that we can see and touch down to every single atom. As one famous theologian once said, there is not a square inch over the whole of creation that God does not declare mine. All of creation finds its ultimate source in God. And church, this is really, really good news. We know where we come from. We know who God is in the story of our lives and in creation. But I want to speak to a specific group of you and actually probably many more than many of us would realize, because some of you hear me describe God, and you're already thinking questions like, how can I be sure? How can I begin to wrap my mind around the reality that there is a God, that God created, and then today he still sustains things by his power, and you're wrestling with doubts and insecurity of belief? Can we just have a safe moment in this teaching? Welcome to the club. Many of us have sat in bed at night and you begin to ponder the things of eternity and you think about God and you begin to know, man, I don't know. There's some things that I'm not sure exactly how to answer. And I would just say, that's okay. It's okay. God and his ways are so above ours. We begin to try to wrap our finite thinking around his infinite ways. Our understanding will always fall short. And so it's okay if you're wrestling with some of this. But there's good news in that for you, too, in that we can't fully understand God, but we can know him. Because the same God who created everything in existence is also personal and inviting, and he invites us into a relationship with him. But it is encouraging that there is reason that we can have confidence in our, our belief in God. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about logic and reason and even some of the compelling evidence for the existence of God. 
Now, before I go down that path, I do want to say this. There will come a moment where you have to have faith. Scripture even says it like this, that without faith, it is impossible to please, uh, to please God, which means there's going to be this choice of believing in him. But really, any belief system requires faith at some point, even inside of the scientific community. Did you know that it is a wide consensus among the scientific community that the origins of the universe are a mystery? There's actually so many gaps in the understanding of the evidence that eventually scientists go, there's some mystery there, which I believe we have faith to understand that God is working something supernatural where science ends. And it's also important to think about it this way, that, that science and faith are not necessarily in competition with each other, though it often seems that way. What if better understanding of science actually led us to better understand how God has been working? In fact, over the course of the past few years, as science, logic, and philosophy move forward, it seems that it's becoming more rational to believe in God than ever before, because there are so many unanswered questions outside of believing in a supernatural God. There are often stories of scientists and philosophers who have been confronted by the evidence of God, and they shift their thinking from atheism, agnosticism, into actually believing in God. We could follow the story of renowned atheist Anthony Flew, who spent his life, his career as a scientist and philosopher, going to lecture halls and universities, arguing against the existence of God. But late in his life, being confronted with conversations and certainly love from Christians and mounting evidence for the existence of God, Anthony Flew leaves his atheism and actually believes in God. And then he has the audacity to write a book. I love the title of this book because the, the title of the book is, is compelling in and of itself. He writes a book, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Isn't that good and encouraging? And so to the group who has questions about God and existence and creation, my encouragement to you is to stay the course. Keep asking your questions. Keep bringing your doubts and your wrestling to God. And even here at 12 Stone, because I believe as you bring your questions and your doubts to God, there's often really good answers. But let's talk about some of the evidence. Let's have a little bit of fun. We're going to move kind of fast through these, but I want to throw kind of two quick looks at two famous arguments for the existence of God at you. The first is this, evidence from morality. Evidence from morality. This argument essentially goes like this. There is a basic universal moral law that exists in all of humanity. That across cultures and time and geography, there is a moral law. Things like don't steal, don't lie, don't kill. Even feelings like you have that, but I don't, and that's not fair. You know how I know that there is a universal moral law? Tomorrow or sometime during your week, try to cut in line somewhere. Like, seriously, go cut in line somewhere. Give it a whirl. Find a line and try to cut into it. Uh, go to Chick-fil-A. Get in your car and the 50 cars that are wrapped around the building, just try to lay on your horn and pop the curb and go grab somebody else's chicken. Because, now, I mean, seriously, think about it. Get between a mom, her minivan, and a kid's in the back to get their food and just wait and see what happens. See, who, who told us 
that lying and murder and stealing and cutting in line and fill in the blank was wrong. There's something in us that objects to these things. Where does this come from? Evolutionary philosophy does not adequately answer these questions for us. Because if evolutionary philosophy actually revealed to us how things are, life would be just one giant struggle of survival of the fittest. Who, who gets to break in line? Well, the biggest guy does. Because he can win the fight. But that's not how we live, is it? Our souls are pulling us a little bit deeper. There's something in us that goes beyond our biology. And it's, and it's not just identifying what's wrong. It's also recognizing what's right. We have the desire to feed the hungry, care for the vulnerable, rescue those facing harm. We seek healthy relationships. We seek beauty, hope, love, justice, and joy. If we were just biological beings, wouldn't we be wired a little bit more like the animals? I mean, go watch Discovery Channel or National Geographic. I, I hope we're living a little bit differently. Now, I know that sin has come in and jacked some of these morals up. I'm not saying we're all walking around perfect. What I am saying is there's something in us that cannot be explained by just our biology. Here's the point. If there is a universal moral law, then there has to be a source for this universal moral law, a moral law giver, God. He has stitched his values, his law, and his desires onto your life and into your heart. And now you have the opportunity to live those out to the flourishing of all life. I'm going to say it a little bit cheesy, but, but I hope this helps. The reality of human morality points to the reality of God. Human morality points to the reality of God. Here's another argument. This one is called the evidence from the universe. Now, this is a, a radical oversimplification, but, but, but roll with me here. This argument goes something like this. Nothing cannot come from something. Nothing can't come from something. It, it's not logical that something would spontaneously generate out of nothing. Yet, here we are. And the universe is not eternal. The universe has a birthday, which science actually affirms. So what caused the universe to begin to exist? Track with me, okay? We're going we're gonna to go down a little bit of path here. That's gonna, we're going to zero in, and we're going to learn something. There has to be a thing or a being that never began to exist, but has always existed in order for anything else to exist, this means that there has to be a unique being that has enough power and exists without a cause in order to cause everything else. Nothing cannot produce something. Philosophers call this the uncaused cause. That something outside of space and time initiated everything in space and time. And we believe this uncaused cause is our God. The Bible teaches us that God is supernatural, that he is transcendent, that he is spirit, and that he exists outside of space and time. Genesis teaches us that God has always existed before anything natural existed. And out of his power, he speaks into nothing and creates everything. And as scientists struggle through the evidence to determine the origin of the universe, they often arrive at this idea of the Big Bang Theory, which simply says this, that there was a moment when time, matter, and space burst into existence. That it was not there, and then it was there in a moment. And people who believe in God and the creation account from Genesis, we're sitting back kind of like, 
Whoa. So you're telling me that there is evidence that all of creation burst into existence in a moment? What does that sound like? Genesis chapter one, verse three. And then God said, and then God said, let there be light. And there was light. These stories, this idea of the Big Bang Theory and the creation account, they're actually not in as much competition as we would believe. And then you go to read the rest of Genesis chapter one and two, and there are this series of powerful let there be's. And God speaks again and again, and he's creating again and again. Psalm 33, verse three and verse six, say it like this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood forth. This is our God. He creates out of nothing everything that we see. And so this helps us understand who God is. But then we need to turn our attention to the follow-up question. Who are we? We take a breath and we look at the majesty of God and then we answer the question of who are we? We are his creation. He is our author, designer, and initiator. He is our father, and we are his children. And he creates us in his image to reflect his character and his likeness. We are unlike any other created thing. Genesis chapter 1 teaches us this as well. Then God said, let us, pause, that is plural, and it's teaching us a little bit about the the Trinity, which we're going to talk about in coming weeks. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his image, the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. If this is true, if we carry his image and his character, this has drastic implications for how we live and how we see ourselves and other people. We'll teach it like this. Humans have unmatched dignity and unique purpose. So let's unpack what that means. Unmatched dignity. Are any art fans like you like art? Like four of you. Great. Um, (laughs) How many of you would say, taking another step, how many of you would say you like abstract art? Raise your hand at home, cross campuses, abstract art. I am dumbfounded at the value of abstract paintings. I Googled the most expensive and valuable abstract paintings in uh, history the other day, and this is what I found. Here's one by Jackson Pollock. Uh, This is actually titled Number 17A, Uh, and I'd like for you to kind of just take two seconds around the room. How much do you think this painting is worth in monetary value? You ready? $200 million. It's unbelievable. There's another one. This is actually the most valuable abstract painting in history. This one is called The Interchange by a man named William Kooning. How much do you think it's sold for? $300 million. Um, I look at this painting, and, and can I just be honest? I think my kids could replicate it. <laughs> million is like a fifth of what it took to build Mercedes-Benz Stadium in downtown Atlanta, but it's on a painting. But here's here's the truth, though, is the painting, of course, is valuable, but the value of the painting actually kind of comes from the identity of its creator because the painting was created by one of the most famous artists in the history of time. If this principle holds through, true, How much more valuable are you because of who your creator is? 
the creator of the universe. That's right. The creator of the universe, the artist who created the artist created you. He formed you and he crafted you in your mother's womb. He thought of you and created. He didn't just throw you together and go shrug his shoulders and go, meh, that'll do. No, no, you are the exclamation point of God's love. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creating power. Your value is not tied to your performance, your earthly beauty, your wealth, or your talents. Your value is tied to the identity of your creator, and that's where you get your dignity from. We have unmatched dignity because of the value of our creator. I pray you feel that in your spirit today. Because if that's true of you, that you have unmatched dignity, it's true of everyone. Every single person who has ever lived from Adam and Eve until the present and into the future has unmatched dignity. Even those people you can't stand, even the opposing news channel and their anchors, even the people who voted differently than you, the people who get on your nerves, the people who you argue with, the people who you hate and who think you think they hate you, the people you dislike, all of those people have unmatched dignity and it changes how we view them. When we sit in the reality that their worth is not determined by their activity on earth, but by the reality that the signature of the creator is over their lives. There is no room for hate or disliking someone when you realize that the image of of the God of the universe is inside of every single person. Humans have unmatched dignity. But we also have unique purpose. And it's with purpose that we answer the question of why. Remember how we framed it at the beginning of the teaching. There's two main lanes that we were going to focus on who and why. And the why is actually bound up in our purpose. You see, God not only created us, but he designed us with intentionality and design necessarily implies purpose. Think about design. We live in a world of amazing design. Just take technology for a moment. I was in my early 20s when I got my first iPhone. I graduated from a flip phone to to an iPhone. And if you know me, you know that I've never really taken on to technology. I am an 80-year-old man stuck in a 32-year-old body. I prefer paper calendars over electronic ones, a paper to-do list over some fancy app. I turn off the software updates on my phone because I don't want Apple telling me how to use my phone right when I just learned how to use it the way they changed it the last time. But you think about a phone. Guys, this is a supercomputer that fits in your pocket. 50 years ago, what it, what the capability of this phone would have taken a whole room to fill up with, with equipment. But somewhere over the decades, men and women, super smart men and women have slowed down and they've, they've designed a supercomputer that now slips into your back pocket. The design is amazing. And if humans can design that, what about the God who designed us? He designed us. He he formed us. Your body, your bone, your muscle, your blood vessels, your nerves, your senses, your functionality. He designed your body, but then he also gave you a soul, which means life is so much more and your purpose is beyond just living and breathing and surviving. There is purpose for all of humanity. And it's also in Genesis chapter one, back to verse 26. 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Hold on on that. Let them rule. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We should read this language as royalty. We carry this royal decree from God over creation to glorify God as a tangible picture of his character and his image to the world. How? By filling it with godly families, by caring for creation, and by bringing everyone under the banner of worshiping him. This is why God created us. Let's sum it up this way. To bring him glory and to bring good to his creation. What's your purpose? To bring glory to God and to bring good to his creation. And so we partner with God. We partner with God by helping the world flourish, by reminding them that they have unmatched dignity. Did you catch that? That our purpose is actually tied to our identity, which means you're helping the world flourish and you're aligning with your purpose when you live in such a way that other people know that God made them and God loves them. What if we were dignity carriers and dignity givers? Now, God ultimately gave dignity to people, but what if we lived and worked and played and where we learn in our everyday activity, in our neighborhoods, on the job, in the community? What if we carried this, this sense of we're going to give people dignity by how we love them and remind them of who God is in their lives? But then also, we, so we, we, we live into our purpose in our everyday lives, but also in uncommon actions. Things like fighting injustice and feeding the hungry and blessing our neighbors and caring for the poor and the marginalized and meeting the needs around us. This brings glory to God because we are reflecting his image to the world. Our purpose collectively is to bring glory to God and to bring good to his creation. But let's get more individual than that. You specifically have a purpose. You have specific things that are true of you. Gifts and passions and opportunities and wiring your personality all of those things were designed by God. What are you good at? Find it. I promise it's there, even if you feel like it's not. What do you love to do? What stirs you up to act? What's your personality like? What talents do you have? These are not mistakes. These are design. And when you take a second look at these things, you begin to realize that you have a purpose that God has ordained just for you. Not the person who looks like they have it all together on Instagram. Not just your, your pastors or your boss or that perfect person across the hallway at work. Not just your parents. Not just fill in the blank. But you have a specific ordained purpose. And our invitation from the creation story is to recognize that God has a purpose for you. And then your response is to say yes and to step into it. To take your design and deploy it for good. So we think about who God is. And then how he's made us. And it leads us to worship. Doesn't it? This quote is from the foundations book that we're doing in our small groups at 12 stone. It says this, since God made everything that we find in the natural world, he is the beauty behind beautiful, the majesty behind everything majestic, the wonder behind everything wonderful. Beauty, majesty, and wonder. This is our God. And at that point, you realize how important the first line of the Nicene Creed is. It doesn't answer all of our questions about creation and existence, but it does give us what is non-negotiable for our faith. There's one God. He is creator. 
He is loving and powerful. And out of that love and power, he made us. If we don't settle this, we'll never land the rest of the creed. This is a foundation to stand on. This is an unchanging truth. So I'm going to step into a conversation with Jason Berry. We're going to talk about how this applies directly to our lives. Trace it in this way, man. Everyone just take a breath. Big inhale. One, two, three. Across the campuses. Bro, it's a lot. And here's the funny thing. We could talk for 30 more weeks about God as creator. This is what's scary. Like, if you could dive in, you'd all fall asleep, but we could. We could talk, and there's layers to this. But here's what we have to do. We are recognizing this is the first pier that we're driving down to bedrock. See, we've been talking about rebuilding. We're back. It's time to rebuild. This is how you rebuild. Like, you rebuild by putting your life on bedrock. And the first line of this creed is monumental that God is creator. That answers the origin question. Where do we come from? See, when you drive your stake into sand and say, I'm a cosmic mistake, an accident, everything else in your life dominoes out of that. And let's just talk, because Trey, we've talked a bunch this week about, and we're talking to the church, but we're talking to people who are seeking. Like, we're talking to people who don't know that they believe this stuff yet. The world is trying to answer these questions for you. And everybody wants to know, what is my identity in? Like, who, where, where, where do I come? Who do, who do I belong to? Where do I come from? And if the best answer we have for that is, I'm a mistake, no wonder anxiety and depression and loneliness is prevalent. See, I, I don't have unmatched dignity if I'm just a mistake. So listen, if you're, if you're seeking, you might be at one of our campuses and someone drug you to church and you're like, I don't know if I believe this. Maybe you're watching online or at 12 Stone Home. What if... What if you are God's creation? Just, you don't have to answer this how I would yet. What if all the places you're chasing your identity, all the places you're trying to answer the, the questions of this earth and you're answering with five-legged answers, what if you did have a creator? We would, we would beg you, stay in these next seven, eight weeks. See, we believe God has answers to the questions you're asking. And God has better answers than the culture's giving. You are created by God, and therefore you have unmatched dignity. And church, let's just be blunt. See, because when we teach this series, there's going to be conversations where we have if-then statements afterwards. Like, if all that you just taught was true, like, if that was true, then what? It's not just we, we get intellectually smarter as a church. Our aim over these eight weeks isn't that you can answer Bible trivia questions. Our, our aim is that God would change something in the soul of who we are. So if God is creator, then when you look in the mirror, you have unmatched dignity. Equally, here's where it gets hard. Everybody else you see has unmatched dignity. That's right. And if we're honest, church, the last 12 months, we've not been the best at that. I'm not going to say names and not going to read posts, but there's posts from 12 stone people that I've read in the last 12 months that I'm like, Oh God, forgive us. Listen, we don't have to agree with everybody to see their unmatched dignity. People don't have to agree with us to see their unmatched dignity. This should be a place that people can show up and disagree with what we're preaching 
and yet feel the love we have for them, not because they deserve it, but because the mark of their creator, the imago Dei, the image of God is in them. And therefore, our love for God translates. Here's one thing you might want to wrestle down this week, church. See, 12 Stone Home, you're used to this. After a teaching, we give you a couple questions to wrestle down. So if you're at home, you know what to do with this. Campuses and here at the live locations, I, mean, I want to give you a couple things to wrestle down. Here's the first one. What's one way this week, something very practical, that you can show somebody else they have unmatched dignity? Maybe it starts in your home. Like it might be with like our kids this week, right? I mean, we could do that. It might be with your spouse. It might be with a neighbor. It might be something on social media that you need to you need to take a turn back towards the way that Jesus would invite us to act on social media. It might be a coworker. What's one way? Like, don't leave this teaching and go. Yep, God's creator. Yippee. No, make it practical. What's one way? And the second thing, Trey, you said is just beautiful. That we each have unique purpose. Like God made you with a purpose for a purpose. So I would invite you, get a piece of paper, and this is going to be weird for some of you, and just try to take inventory. Like, what has God made you uniquely good at? And sometimes you need to ask a trusted friend, because the things you do the best are usually the most natural, so you can't see them. Say, God, how have you wired me with purpose? Like, you didn't put me here. If I'm not a mistake, if you created me, you put your fingerprint on me. You gave me a purpose. So make a list and start to hone in and say, God, You've put me here on purpose, with a purpose, with, with gifting, spiritual gifts, and personality, and wiring. And oh God, I would love to invest the majority of my life in that sort of bullseye of how you've created me. Can I add a thought to that? Please. Um, I think one of the, the trappings that so many of us are in is we want to attach our purpose to our vocation. Like mm -hmm. we want to attach our purpose to the job that we do to make money and to make a living. Um, and I'm reminded of, of the story of the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament. We remember Paul as the greatest evangelist, church planner, missionary the world has ever seen. But oftentimes, he'd have to slow down in a city and make tents in yeah. order to support the mission and the purpose of his life. So if you feel stuck in finding your purpose because you're in a job that you don't like, I would say your job doesn't define your purpose. You can still live into your purpose if you don't love your job. So don't get stuck in thinking, I don't know if that applies to me. I, I do this for a living, and there's just no purpose in that. Hey, that may be what puts food on the table, and then you live into your purpose with who you are, how you live as a neighbor, other things that you pursue. I just want people to know that there's freedom in that, right? That's there's great. freedom in not being stuck around your vocation aligning with your, with yeah. your purpose. I heard it said that purpose is less about what you do and more about how you do it. Yeah. And we can bring the, the wiring that God's put in us into how we do our jobs and how we do family. So church, two questions to wrestle down here across the campuses, 12 Stone Home Online. What's one way? You can show people that they have unmatched dignity. And then spend some time with God and some people you trust and say, God, how have you wired me for purpose? See, so chew on those questions this week. And next week, we jump in with the second line of the Nicene Creed. And we believe over these next several weeks, God's going to knit this in the life of the church. God's going to drive these peers deep down into us so that we can live above the floor line, aligned with the things that God says are unchanging truth. So 12 Stone, we love you. We're going to ask Trey to pray over us. And when he says amen, we love you guys. And we'll see you back next week. So pray for us. So Father, we worship you first as creator. Just take a moment and think about his power that he spoke into nothing and created everything. Lord, you are beyond our thinking, but you're so worthy of our worship. And so we give it to you, Lord. You are, you're worth it. 
And out of worshiping you, we find our identity. We find that we have unmatched dignity and unique purpose because you formed us, you created us. We are of no mistake. So this week, would your church live into that? Would you give clarity of mind? I pray that tomorrow morning, Monday morning looks different because of this truth for everyone that's, that's hearing this teaching. But I pray that um, where there's insecurity, there'd be confidence. Again, we don't know exactly how to always defend your existence, but what I can know is that we can have confidence in our belief. So would you raise clarity in your church and confidence in your church? Would we live in this truth that you are our creator? And that has massive implications for my life and the life of everyone I see. So bless your church this week as we stand on this truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We love you, church. Have a great week in the Lord. See you back next weekend. Thank you again for spending time with us today. A special thanks to those of you who generously give through 12 Stone. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about 12 Stone, make sure you follow us on social at 12 Stone Church and check out a location or a watch party near you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you could subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the share button, or even take a screenshot and throw it in your social stories. And make sure to tag 12 Stone Church. Let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.